I was not the person you wanted your daughter to go out with. I was not who you hoped your son ran with. Uh, just wasn't a good person. I don't ever remember in all of my drinking history of drinking a couple. Yeah. It was always to excess. I got in some trouble with the law. They told me they would give me one month in a treatment center in Yaleville, Arkansas, or I could do a year in the county jail. And my answer was, what kind of good time do they have because I'm not ready to quit? While in jail, uh, I started craving drugs and alcohol very, very badly. And I had a guy intentionally break my arm so I could get pills. He said, well, it may be two, three weeks before we can get you a bed and you're going to die in withdrawals. I said, I'm kind of tired of living anyway. Uh, God had a plan. I just had a problem. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is an amazing scripture, but what if I choose not to follow God's plan for my life? What if I have a problem? What if that problem leads me to make some really bad choices? Choices that have set me on a dark path and have led me to some serious consequences. Maybe I have traveled so far down that path that I feel there is no hope for change. Is there hope for change? What's the first step? What if I've taken steps in the right direction only to fall right back into my problem? What does God think about me? Will he help me if I call to him? Is it possible to get back on track and step back into God's plan for my life? These are the questions that I want to ask our guest today as he shares his life change story with us. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. So, hey, friend, thanks for joining me today. Why don't you let the listeners know who you are? Good afternoon. I'm Bob Martin. I'm grateful to be a member of a 12-step recovery program, and I'm able today to speak with you a term that just God put in my head and on my heart one day called Godfidence. And I'm confident, faithful, and trusting God will love and take care of me, my family, and my friends. And that's one of the things I just try to live by. That is fantastic. So where did you come up with Godfidence? It, it was just a God deal, Eric. It, uh, it just popped into my head before I spoke one night in front of a group and I just ran with it, and it's it's worked for me. Oh, well, I love that. Well, listen, every story that I have on this podcast starts somewhere. So tell me a little bit about your beginnings. Where did you uh, grow up? Where were you born? And tell me a little bit about your childhood. I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, my parents both worked at St. John's Hospital. I was raised in a good Christian family. My grandfather was a pastor. Uh, I had... A great childhood, oh. and uh, I, I refer to myself today as a drug Baptist because I was drug every time the doors open. I had three siblings. I had a sister eight years older, uh, a sister thirteen months younger, and a little brother three and a half years younger than me. My parents were under the impression they could not have any more children. They could not for eight years. 
they bought a new car and a new house and proceeded to raise their little family. And here came the rest of us. Um, we were raised, we were poor, but we didn't know it because everybody else around us was. Both my parents worked very hard, uh, went to work every day, and their goal in life was to provide for their children. Wow. And it was, I was had plenty of fun times. We spent a lot of time at the lake. Uh, my dad and I got to play a lot of golf together. I had motorcycles. It just a lot of fun and adventure. Uh, when I look back, my future had nothing to do with my childhood. So let's talk about a little bit. I always ask people about God, and you mentioned Baptist and that you were drug into to, uh, the services and all of that stuff. So uh, tell me about that. So did you have a childhood God experience where you would say, I accepted God as my Lord and Savior, and I got baptized? I mean, did that happen to you young, or was that later? At 15 years old, I was saved at Falls Creek Church Camp. Uh, so God's been really good to me. So tell me, was there much conflict in your home, or would you say that's relatively normal? Very little. My parents uh, were married 52 years when my dad passed away from bone cancer. Uh, they both agreed that through that 52 years, they fought more about me than they did any other thing combined, and that was my 12-year run uh, with alcohol and drug addiction. So now 12 years— was that like when you were a teenager, or was that when, how, when did you start that? The abuse started at 18 when my brother was killed. Mm-hmm. I was off and running. Okay. Uh, when I look back from that point on, I didn't consciously know I had a choice to do anything different. I was running from my feelings. Uh, I didn't learn for a long time. Uh, after I sobered up, that I did not, could not, and should not judge my insides by other people's outsides. Everybody else looked so normal, and I was just tormented on the inside. I wanted to always slow down. Everything was going too fast. Um, I was in a hurry to do everything with nowhere to go. a, a guy described it perfectly one day in a meeting. I was aimlessly wandering nowhere. Mm. And that just describes my life. It was, I learned that I drank and used drugs to change the way I felt. And I very seldom ever liked the way I felt. So it was just a constant. I was that hamster on the wheel. Right. And had no idea I had a choice to get off. So what was your gateway into alcohol? Because Did your dad drink? Did you see, now I know you said your dad played golf and that was kind of a common thing for you guys. Where did you first uh, take your first drink? Where did you, where did, where was that gateway into that lifestyle? I think my very first drink um, was at the ninth grade prom. I went with a junior who asked me to go with her, and I thought, I'm all about this. Um, But then it was very seldom when we got an opportunity. Uh, My friends' parents were basically like mine, hardworking, do right, go to church, and it was a small town. They 
kept a really good eye on us at the time. My mother, after my brother got killed, went to work at Safeway as a checker. So she checked all my friends out. She checked all the police officers out, the judge. Yeah, I, she knew everybody. And the joke was I could run a stop sign and she would know about it before I cleared the intersection. So, so you it, didn't have much opportunity to, to mess up. And not much. <laughs> okay. So now you said your brother died when you were 14 or 15? He was 14. I was 18. Okay. You were 18. Okay. But you got, you said you got saved or you asked Christ in at your 15. life at 15. Okay. So things are going along and you would say at 15, 16, 17 before your brother died. So you just kind of maybe, did you just dabble in alcohol a little bit? Go to a party every now and then? I mean. Yes. And when I look back at it, at it, Eric, what did not happen is I received Christ into my heart, but I never developed a working relationship. So are you comfortable sharing about your brother and what happened in that scenario? Are you comfortable yes, with that? So tell me, so you're 18, he was 14. Mm-hmm. What what happened? I mean, murder, I mean, that's a that's a huge deal. I mean, it sounds to me like it... Was it an accident? Can you describe the events that happened? We lived in Owasso at the time, and he wanted me to take him to the skating rink. And I said, no, I'm busy. I got places to go and people to see. I'm not taking you. So my sister, I think, dropped him off, and my mother was going to pick him up when she got off work at Safeway. And him and a young man got into a squabble of some kind during the first session they made him sit out. They skated the whole second session together. And after they were leaving, he was walking home with two brothers that lived right behind the skating rink. And the kid ran up and swung his skates by the laces. And the wheels struck my brother's vertebrae just in his lower neck and drove two vertebrae through his brainstem. My word. So was it an instant? He was instantly brain dead, but his organs were still good. That must have been horrible. So um, the kid that did that, he probably didn't intend to murder him. I mean, he probably intended harm, but the murder was probably not his end result. So um, that had to be traumatic, not just for you and your family, but then for him and his family as well. Did, uh, did Did he go to jail? or I mean, he was only 14 or 15, wasn't he? He was 12. Oh, my word. Uh, but he was sentenced to a lot of psychiatric care. His family asked permission from the court to move out of the state uh, somewhat because of me. Uh, I was pretty sure it needed a violent correction. Uh, and that's me just not knowing how to deal with feelings. Uh, what I discovered is I never really grieved my brother's death until I went to treatment at 29. Uh, carried a lot of anger. Uh, anger would turn into bad behavior. Uh, but it was very traumatic, and nothing bad ever happened in our family because we went to church, and that's what I understood at the time. Uh, the first night I went into the hospital, um, they gave me a script of volumes at the door and said, take these when it hurts. So now you mentioned at the hospital, and I'm, I'm assuming maybe your brother's at the hospital, and you said, if, you said that they said that if you hurt, here's some 
Valium, right? My dad was in management at the hospital at the time, and they literally, I mean, we couldn't have asked for better treatment. Uh, but, yeah, they gave me 110 milligram Valiums in a bottle and said, take these when it hurts. Now, were they talking about emotionally, physically, or what were they just talking about? I mean, you that know, sounds like a drug dealer. <laughs> when I look back uh, in the late 70s, Valium was a wonder drug. We took them for everything. And uh, I don't know if people knew how addictive it was. Uh, and I really don't think they knew how dangerous it was in the hands of an 18-year-old. So where did the volume, I mean, eventually, and they sound to me that they gave you a pretty good uh, amount, but eventually you ran out. Did you, Was it hard to get it, you know, uh fulfill or refilled? Is it hard to do that? Or was it just kept refilling that? And where did that lead you? The DEA didn't have any of the control guidelines they do now. Um, I literally took it back to the pharmacy. I set the empty bottle on the counter. They said, give me a brand new bottle back. And they charged it to my parents. I didn't even have to pay for the script. So how long did that go on with the volume? Quite a while over a year at least. And when it started to decline and things were getting a little more difficult, then I would, and I, it was always the wrong direction, I would take uh, some kind of stimulant speed and go to the doctor. I'd take it about a half hour before I went to the doctor and I'd go in, my blood pressure would be high, I'd be shaking. Uh, and what and was the point of that? I needed to calm down. They I know, would, but you, you were asking for more value. I did on purpose. Okay, gotcha. And they would give me more medicine. Uh, it, it it was tragic, but when I look back, it's just the disease of addiction at work. And do you attribute that to trying to medicate yourself from your brother's death? Um, you said that that's really where it started to get severe. I think that's where it started. There was a point where I liked it. And had what I perceived to be a lot of fun. The problem came when the consequences started outweighing the fun. So let's talk about that for a minute. You're eight. You're over eighteen, so you're legally an adult. Are you still living at home, or did you go off to college somewhere? What happened after high school and after eighteen? Um, I received a full ride academic athletic scholarship to play golf. Um, brilliant future ahead of me. Didn't know you could get suspended from college, but it turns out you can. Uh, turns out they still call your parents, and they're, it was still ugly. A um, lot of pranks, a lot of not putting other people in danger, but having fun at others' expense. Mm. Um, I don't ever remember in all of my drinking history of drinking a couple. It was always to excess. Um, at one semester they recruited me, but then they decided in December they could live without me very easily. Matter of fact, they banned me from coming back on campus. Um, uh, I went to a college closer to home, uh, made very good grades, but then I wandered back onto the wild side, um. I was not the person you wanted your daughter to go out with. I was not who you hoped your son ran with. Uh, just wasn't a good person. 
a lot of people understood that I was hurting, very confused and lost, uh, but no one really had the cure. Lots of traffic tickets. Uh, I got in some trouble with the law. My parents hired an expensive attorney from Tulsa. Uh, he came out. He got a big break, and they called a recess. They told me they would give me one month in a treatment center in Yaleville, Arkansas, or I could do a year in the county jail. And my answer was, what kind of good time do they have because I'm not ready to quit? It hurt my parents very much. My dad just walked out of the courthouse and I ended up going to jail. And it uh, while in jail, uh, I started craving drugs and alcohol very, very badly. And I had a guy intentionally break my arm so I could get pills. Wow. And it didn't go as planned. I wanted a fracture and a few months' worth of pills. Um, what I got was three plates and 13 pins and no use of my left arm. They were going to amputate it. Uh, my dad talked to a friend of his that was a doctor into just doing an experimental surgery basically on it and promised not to sue him for the outcome. And they told me I'd never play golf again and I'd never even be able to use my hand to drive. But they did the surgery, and I want to say I spent one or two nights in the hospital. It wasn't very long because the county was paying for it. Uh, and then I had to go back to jail. And in the meantime, the lawyer told them, you can't provide for him. You can't meet his medical care. It's the summer. He has a cast that's going to sweat and get infected, and then we're going to sue you. So let him go home on house arrest. And this one, house arrest was something new. They didn't have bracelets. Right. They just had the honor system. So basically. they sent you home. They let me go home. With drugs? Oh, yeah. I had to have the pain pills. I was home maybe two nights, possibly three. And a girlfriend of mine called and said she just bought a new 78 Indy Pace Car Vet. And if I could sneak out, she'd swing by and pick me up, and we'd go for a drive. So at 1230, it was after midnight, I snuck out. Her and I go for a drive. I'm driving her car, going way too fast. Here come the red and blue lights, and I'm on house arrest. So I run from them because I'm in training to be a NASCAR driver in my mind. And when we started going down a gravel road, I just stopped. And I said, we're not tearing this car up. I can't do this. And I got out, and the police officer said, why didn't you just stop? I would have taken you home. You know that. He goes, I've got more people coming from more directions than you want to know about. And I said, I'm sorry. He says, you just keep being your own worst enemy. And I still remember that. And uh, so then they put me back in jail and didn't care if my arm rotted off. Uh, I was only there about another month or so when I was out. It didn't change anything. It made it worse. Rebellion set in at that point. Uh, I uh, I just proceeded to in and out of trouble. At the very end of what I called my worst drinking and drug abuse, uh, 
I had a sleeping bag and a car, and I slept in an abandoned house uh, just so I could keep going. I collected uncollectible drug debts. was my livelihood. That's how I supported my habit. So what age were you then? Was that before you? You said you— At 29. So on the side, you were—so you were doing drugs and alcohol, but on the side, you were collecting—you were working as a bouncer. I mean, you were basically— Probably more dangerous than that. Okay. If someone didn't pay their drug dealer, then I would come and see them, and I got half of whatever I brought back to— the drug dealer. So there were some pretty uh, bad confrontations. There's some really, really dangerous places with dangerous people. And God, when I look, God just looked over me. Uh, God had a plan. I just had a problem. At 29 years old, uh, I was Involved with this lady. She became pregnant. She told me if I didn't sober up, I was never going to see that that boy. Uh, and I believed her. When she told me that, I ended up going to treatment. I went to my parents' house, which I was banned from at the time. Uh, my mom and dad, the, the standard argument was, if you'd quit going to get him, he'll quit going to jail. Quit, let him sit there. And she just would tell him, that's your only son. How can, you let, how can you say that? And that's what they argued about. And so I came into their house one Friday morning at about 7, 38 o'clock. They were sitting at the table having breakfast, and – my mother said, you need to leave now. You're not welcome. We told you, and it's obvious that you're not right. You need to leave. I said, but I need help. And she said, you're an ambitious young man. You'll find it. But you, I'm done. You need to leave. And uh, the long and short of my recovery uh, was my mother. I quit when my mother did. And I've had to tell several mothers through the years, leave that boy alone and let me try to help him and quit rescuing him. And he'll get it. But it had to be where my own mother gave up on me. I've been called some bad things. I've been called some true things. Uh, But when your own mother gives up on you, You're at the bottom of the barrel. My dad says, wait a minute. I've been waiting a decade to hear that kid ask for help. We need to do something. And she looked at him, and I remember that look on his face like, oh, here we go. And they took me to a treatment center uh, in Tulsa that was inside a hospital in an abandoned wing. and It was fully state-funded. And I went in to be screened. And the guy told me, uh, he said, you are entirely too sick for us to help you here. You must go be detoxed in Stillwater. I said, I never liked Stillwater. I'm not going to Stillwater. He said, well, it may be two or three weeks before we can get you a bed, and you're going to die in withdrawals. I said, I'm kind of tired of living anyway. I, I'm, I'm just done. And he said, please have your parents take you 
to be detoxed. That's all I can tell you. He goes, and call here every day and check on a bed. And I went back downstairs, and my parents said, what they say? Well, they said it'd be two or three weeks before they get a bed and for me to call them every day. I chose to omit the detox part. So they took me back to their house, and for four days, I went into full drug and alcohol withdrawals, DTs, all of the above, hallucinations, uh, a very, very bad time. Uh, and I today, thank God, I still remember it. And uh, I started calling that treatment center, and the lady would tell me, same lady receptionist answered every time, and she said, I don't have a bed today, but I've marked you down as checked in. And she said, but drink orange juice and honey and know that I love you. So I did it till the bed came open. It was just a low point in my life. I was homeless, uh, living a really, really hard life. Uh, so was that your coming to Jesus moment whenever you, you know, you mentioned earlier that you made a decision outwardly, but that the relationship wasn't there as a kid. Right. So when did that relationship start hitting you? When I went to treatment, I became introduced to the 12 steps. Uh, the third step talks about turning our will and lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I didn't understand him at all. I, I, but I knew I had to do something different. And it was about change. They told me I only had to change a few things. My playthings, my playgrounds, and my playmates. I had to change everything. I said, but I have such good friends. Let me know how that is in two years. Uh, but I made a decision to turn my will and life over to the care of God, but I took it back a lot, and I couldn't do it completely. And I got the treatment, uh, did extremely well then because I had the main ingredient called willingness, and I went out and I stayed sober for seven months. Uh, Young man was born. The tension between her and I really ramped up. Uh, relapsed, went back out for six months, came back in for 10 months, doing really well. So I tried to do it by myself. Didn't work. Uh, relapsed again, lost the job. Uh, went back out for six more months. And... Knowing all along, I have to do this. I cannot live this way anymore. And my sponsor finally told me, he said, I've got you right where I want you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. He said, it's an awful time in your life, but it's messed up both. You can't drink anymore like you used to, and you can't live anymore like you want to. And I had so much trouble with relapse. Uh, I studied it like an art form. It was going to kill me. I, I knew alcohol was my enemy, but I had no idea how dangerous it was. 
it would tell me it'll be different this time. Uh, you've done enough work that it won't hurt you anymore. You can take two, have a good time, and go on home. Uh, I promise it'll be different. Uh, just a couple. You'll have more fun. And it's like, thank you, devil, but no, can't happen. And my sponsor told me, he said, look, he said, you ought to be glad there is something out there in the universe that's willing to take this piece of crap for a life that you have. He said, God's waiting with open arms. I said, God's mad at me. And he said, if he was mad at you, very mad, you wouldn't be here. He goes, he's got a plan for you. And I said, I just can't do it. He said, okay, will you at least admit, which is in step one, you're powerless over alcohol and your life's become unmanageable. He said, fair statement, got it. I'll go with you on that one. He goes, then give him your obsession to drink. And he said, and every time you want to drink, you say in your head, if you're with people and if you're by yourself, you say it out loud, God, please remove this obsession to drink. And he goes, when you say that, if it's still there, God, please remove this obsession to drink. And you say it till it goes away. And I said, well, that's about the craziest thing I've heard. He goes, no, it isn't. You're crazy. And I went, okay. And so I did that. And within 90 days, I no longer had an obsession to drink. Now, the minute or the hour, I have no idea. It just faded. Um uh, and today, when I have a thought of drinking, because I think every alcoholic does, uh, it's almost a snicker and a laugh like, yeah, we know how that'll work out. Go ahead and try that someday. And what it led to, Eric, was I have a working relationship with the God who loves me, who looks out for me, who provides me. I, I mean... God has me living such a life that I could have never dreamed of when I sobered up. And I just have to be grateful. Never had any one person ever, and I ask a lot, no one was ever grateful before they relapsed. So what I deducted from that, as long as I stay grateful, I'll never have to drink. And if I don't drink, I got a chance. Uh, to me, gratitude, God is the number one being in this relationship, but gratitude is the number one ingredient. By the grace of God, alcohol and drugs have beaten me for the last time. Mm. I'm still an alcoholic. I'm still a drug addict. And as long as I don't mess with alcohol and drugs, not a problem. So how long have you been sober? For, when, since 29? Simply by the grace of God, since 31 years old, I've, had, I've got 33 years of sobriety. Praise God. I have to go to meetings, go to church, pray, work with other alcoholics. Uh, I help a lot of elderly because I know a lot about that industry. And I have to do all those things to keep me grounded in the fact that I'm a child of God. I matter. Amen. 
So what happened to your son? Did you ever see him again? So she ended up hiding him and keeping him away from us. Um, I met him when he was 16 years old. She was the only one that had the pieces. He thought another man was his dad, had no idea I even existed. Uh, He's got his own family and little girl now. Um, Him and I still have a lot of problems. We've had some really good times, and we've had some really ugly times. Uh, Unfortunately, right now, I think he's doing some things uh, to make his own testimony, and there's not much I can do about that. And I pray for him, uh, but it's a strained relationship at best. I just try to keep my side of the street clean, and it's hard sometimes because I desperately want to jump across that street and clean up his side, and I can't. Yeah. Uh, I uh, ended up graduating from college, going back. Uh, I was able to go back to – I was worked at a college when I sobered up, and my education was free. So I went back and ended up graduating sober. Uh, I put a rush on my college degree, and I graduated when I was 35. Uh and it was the craziest thing. While I was working uh, at the university after I'd been sober a couple of years, uh, I had a newborn baby, a, a wife for the first time at 33, a baby for the first time at 34. And I got to be friends with the lady at the school and her husband coached at Mississippi State. And she said... You know, they've got this amazing golf program. For 10 years, I couldn't hit golf balls because my arm was so messed up. It was just physically and painfully impossible. Um, But I got to play golf again. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I know you went on to run and manage several nursing homes during your business career. Now you're retired, and God is using you as you serve in your church and other ministries. Now we need to wrap up. And so because of time, I want to ask you, do you have any last words before we close up today? I'd like to close, Eric, if I could. Uh, it's probably one of, I love my one-liners because they saved my life. When I couldn't comprehend what they were saying in meetings, I couldn't understand what the book was saying. I could write down one-liners, and I've accumulated a large number of them. But one of the ones that I think applies today most Uh, the work we do on ourselves becomes our gift to everyone else. Make a gratitude list every day. And if you got to make one five times a day, grateful people don't drink. They just don't. So I want you to read your Godfidence again, and we'll end with that. Godfidence is I'm confident, faithful, and trusting God will love and take care of me, my family, and my friends. Thanks, Bob, for sharing your story with us today. Hey, if you are listening today and you love that verse that I read at the beginning of the podcast about God having a plan for your life, but maybe you've blown it and you've made some really bad choices. Let me read the next couple of verses out of Jeremiah 29. Verses 12 and 13 say, Then you will call on my name and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you need change in your life, seek God with all your heart and he will bring change to your life just like he did for Bob. Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.